0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. I want to get this right out in the beginning because I want people to know. And I can't I can't come out and knock on every door. I can't email all of you. I don't know who you all are, but I do have some gigs coming up. Primarily the one I want to to tell you about and make sure you know about is that I added a sixth show. A sixth fucking mouth. Six. I'm, I'm doing, I was doing five. Now I'm doing six. I've added a show in Portland, Oregon. We've added a late show on Sunday, October 22nd, because those things sold out so early. So if you're in Portland and you want to go to Helium, uh, go get a ticket. You can get tickets at wtfpod.com slash tour. I'm also in Bellingham, Washington at the Mount Baker Theater for one show on Saturday, October 14th as part of the Bellingham Exit Festival. These are Pacific Northwest gigs. If you're in Seattle, make the drive. I won't be back to Seattle until the spring. I won't be back to Portland until probably the late spring if I come back. So these are shows that are going to happen you know, once in a year. I also wanted to clear up this, uh, this bit of business and it might only be important to one or two people. It might be important to, uh, uh, SNL historians. It might be important to, uh, deep cut Alan Zweibel fans. It might be important to Alan Zweibel because he texted me about it. So Zweibel reached out to me and and I guess this has been well documented. He was a little upset that, uh, that uh, Chevy didn't quite credit him for it during our conversation, uh, and he took some credit for it, I believe. But the joke uh, was the post office is about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. It's a 10-cent stamp. If you want to lick it, it's a quarter. And that was Alan Bell's joke, and he was on the show. He is featured on episode 1135. Great guy. Great writer. I told him I'd clear that up. Now it's clear. We're good. Did I mention today that Larry Charles is on the show? And, man, we had we we got it going, man. And there's some people I just lock into, and we definitely had a great conversation. He was a writer on Seinfeld and a director on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He directed the movies Borat, Bruno, The Dictator, and Masked and Anonymous. His new film is called Dicks the Musical. And there are some guys I just kind of lock in with, and we just go. And Larry was definitely one of those guys. I've been wanting to meet him and talk to him for a long time. I always thought that he was somewhat of a mysterious character and might not be uh, a a person who would like to talk to me or that I would be able to talk to, but it was like uh, kindred spirits, man. It was uh, definitely a a symbiotic uh, kind of riff party. Uh, Slightly Jewish in origin, I think, uh, by the nature of how we connected, uh, you know, mentally and genetically, in terms of uh, you know the groove, man. There's the eternal kind of um, Ashkenazo groove that kind of moves through the universe, certainly through comedy and show business and everything else. And uh, we, I think we uh, we grabbed hold of that for an hour plus, and it was a great conversation. But I do want to say something about this movie. Now look, you know I I don't know all the Seinfeld episodes. I, I never locked in, and then eventually I I just it went away. I mean, I know it's always available. You know, uh, ad infinitum is that a way to use that forever somewhere? There's there's always a Seinfeld episode playing somewhere at any time, but it was not my show, and certainly. I've, I've known about Larry for years. I knew about his involvement with Curb. I knew about Borat and this stuff. And he always seemed like this interesting guy that was able to kind of carve out his own comedy life. But the point is, this movie, I, I don't know what I'm getting into when people send a film to me to watch. And I know this is Larry Charles and I know that he's a, he's a boundary pusher. I know that he is a comedic risk taker when given the freedom to do that. I had no idea what to expect, no idea what to expect from this musical dicks. Now I assumed that the title meant dicks like dick, like, you know, dicks, but I still didn't know. And I got to be honest with you. It is a filthy crass, insane, legit musical. And, you know, we talked about it. It came out of the minds of a couple of guys who improvised it. Nathan Lane is in it. Megan Mullally is in it. It's a real musical, but it is transcendently filthy. Uh, And I would say gratuitously, so why not? I mean, it is designed to be as filthy as it can within the sort of world that it creates and because it's a musical and because it is sort of grounded in a uh, an idea a conceit that is fundamentally a gay conceit uh, that there's a balance to the filth uh, because it is not really making fun of anybody in a way that's mean or vicious but it's certainly insanely dirty and and it, I would say provocative it it is a type of comedy that for me and i and i talked to him about this that there were there were times in the 70s and he came up around he's a little older than me but there was a type of comedy happening coming out of san francisco coming out of new york coming out of you know los angeles to a gr- degree i'm sure many major cities that was just you know full on balls to the wall smut for the sake of smut, for the sake of filth, for the sake of being dirty, it was some sort of kind of reaction to the creative license that Lenny Bruce created, that Robert Crumb picked up on, that even you know, people like Al Goldstein were, were sort of on the pulse of. There was something happening, John Waters for sure, where the comedy you know, was slightly secondary to how bad could the taste be? And I'm not talking about taste in your mouth. I'm saying this is bad taste shit. But there was a whole world of comedy that did that. And there is a certain aggressive, just fucking dirty camp to it. Uh, And I think it's directly connected to Waters. and, And this is something that I'm sure John Waters would love. But there's some things that you can't even understand where they came from. But for some reason, they make perfect sense. And they're completely fucking dirty. But they are rooted in something. There is something about gay culture in here that is completely embracing, yet completely kind of not making fun of, but just taking to the limit. I guess they're making fun, but because it is driven by gay characters, there's there's a uh, a balance to it. I, I don't even know. I found it to be kind of mind-blowing. And above all, it honors the structure of a musical. So it really works somehow. I I can't really... Look, you know what you're getting into. If you like Borat and you like those movies, that type of movie, this one is so well thought out. It's not an improvisational adventure. There's dance numbers. There's a, a full spectrum of, of dirty ideas in it. And it's just, you don't see this shit anymore, man. You know, you don't see pure, you know, dirty, well-articulated, well-visualized, well-choreographed uh, good songs when it comes to, uh, to your comedy. I would say there's several trigger warnings, but the bottom line is it is a complete celebration of filth and bad taste in, in a way that I have not seen, you know, certainly since John Waters and certainly since the seventies and, and certainly not with this kind of production value. I, I, I loved it. And, and I, and I was happy that I did uh, and, and I could enter the conversation with what he was there to talk about. I mean, we talked about everything, but man, that fucking movie dicks the musical, see it. If you can, and just let yourself be kind of mind blown by pure filth in the most, uh, uplifting and funny way possible. So listen, folks, I, I, I have to bring you some bad news. Uh, The refrigerator odyssey with my Ukrainian repair guy, Alex, has come to a close. I've decided to bring it to a close. I I couldn't I couldn't go on anymore. I you know, it's broken. The last we left off, it was still broken. I texted Alex. He said he was out of town. He would fix it when he got back. I have not heard from him and I've not reached out again because I can't be that guy anymore. It's ridiculous. It was a fucking farce. And I guess no harm no foul on some level. He was pretty dead set on fixing it. I think it, it felt to me like it was a a you know, his life's it would be a, a life-defining moment to fix my refrigerator. But I can't do it anymore. I can't pester the guy. I can't wait around for something that's not going to happen. I, it, I uh, it, it was it was a codependent relationship and um you know, I haven't closed it up with him. I haven't said, look, I, I don't want to see you anymore or look, you know, this isn't working out or, or I'm moving on to other repair personnel. I, I couldn't I, I just I'm just I just ghosted him and I'm fucking done with it because, you know, I'm proud to announce that uh, I purchased a new refrigerator that will be delivered later this month. It's basically the same model and, uh, and it's going to fit the hole in the wall and I'm starting fresh. I mean I know that thing was 15 or over 15 years old and it's been through a lot but look man it's not even about the ice maker anymore the thing is old it's yellow the the seal, the seals are getting kind of flat it's yellowing around the seals the pla- the plastic is drying out and it's just a lot of things a lot of things it's a it was a beautiful piece of equipment I know Alex loved it I know that you know his feelings for, for the refrigerator were different than mine you know, he really thought that he could help it. He really thought that he could bring it life and, and make its, you know, its, its next few years, you know, not prosperous, but productive in terms of ice making. But, you know, he just I think I can't even say he dropped the ball, but I think we're both giving up. That happens in these relationships. And this was really a threesome in a way. It was me and Alex in this and this old fridge that was kind of kind of running out of steam and it's, it's days are numbered, but, uh, I'll spend quality time with it. I'll, I'm not going to tell Alex, I'm not going to tell the angry Ukrainian repair man that his project, his life project, the thing that was going to kind of send him off into the sunset, you know, a, a, a kind of thing that he could kind of put a notch on his belt for victories in his life is just not going to happen. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to bring it up until, uh, maybe he'll get in touch with me in a few weeks. I'll go like, it's done, dude. It's done. That fridge is gone. You hated it anyways. It's gone, baby. So I'll let you know how it goes when I let him know. I I don't assume he'll be emotional about it. I don't know. But he did warn me that the new ones have too many computers in them, which means that on some level, because he is the licensed repair guy for Thermador, I, I imagine I'll see Alex again down the line and we'll be sort of convening over another refrigerator that's more complicated Not as good, but nonetheless, that means there's a future for a new triad of me, Ukrainian Alex, and the Thermidor that's got too many brains. That's the name of the book. That's the name of the short story. That's the name of the fable. That's the name of the children's book. It's all happening, folks. Okay, here we go. So the film... That Larry did called Dick's the Musical opens in theaters tomorrow, Friday, October 6th, and will be expanding in future weeks. The movie is being distributed by A24 and it has an interim promotional agreement with SAG-AFTRA. And this thing is a uh, it's a fucking dirty, filthy movie. Uh, It is a crass bit of uh, uh, provocative and truly edgy humor. And it's definitely not for everybody. But I don't know how that promotion, I don't know how that plug won't make almost everybody go see it. That's, and I'm, you know, I'm going to stand by that. This is me talking to Larry Charles. I'm noticing I'm going to be 60 next week. Right. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I made it. So yeah, right. It, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, I don't think you notice them until 60. Really, I didn't. Like, I, you know, I, it didn't matter. But for some reason, the 60s, like, fuck. Well, I can't pretend that I'm not going to die anymore. That's right. That, that's it.
1: I think I was able to pretend that I was immortal in yeah. my mind, and that allowed me to do a lot of crazy things. Right. And suddenly, I had like an epiphany of like, "Wow, yeah, I could die now. Like, yeah, anytime. I, and people we know are dying around I, us I know. anytime
0: with I know. no logic. I you know. know? I, I, yeah, and I think like I had this weird framework in my brain that if you if you made it, uh, you know, to twenty three. You, you, okay, that's the first hurdle. Right, and then I if do. you, and then if you make it to like I think I put it at like thirty four, uh-huh. then you're good. Yeah. And then if you make it past fifty five, you you could, you're probably in for a good run. Yeah, yeah. But that's I don't true. know if that holds up. Is it true? I don't know. Uh, it's well, something I tell myself.
1: Yes, I think we have to delude ourselves. That's the only way <laughs> we're going to get through this. That's all of it. Doug. Yes, yeah. Uh, you, you know, we're I'm, Americans. Also, we have we have the good privilege, the fortune. Of being able to even spend time contemplating this stuff. Sure. If you're in Mogadishu, you're
0: just running all the time. You know. Well, yeah, yeah, and and I think there's something about the framework of that uh, of the series that you did, you know, around that stuff that I want to I want to bring up. But it, but sure. But personally, the anxiety is directly relative to mortality awareness. Yes. And and but like I and I think the anxiety for me is that like I get obsessed with bullshit. Absolutely. Like yeah. Distractions. Right. We but have ha- to distract ourselves from our, our crushing reality. Well, at, at all costs, So You know, yeah. like I used to talk about uh, Ernest Becker all the time about the denial of death. Yes. That, that you know, if, if we're not part of something, okay, so you and I are not believers. Right. So, you know, so we don't have, we're not afforded the luxury of be feeling some part of something bigger than ourselves. Right. That's uh, mythological to define our existence. Yes. So it really has to be about, you know, why the fuck is this coffee machine not working?
1: Well, and also I, I think if if I may, I yeah. think our egos, you know we, we we've lost, we lost control of our egos along the way somewhere. and now, you know, as we're sort of facing mortality, the ego is sort of trying to fight us on this reality, you know. Right. right. So like the, the denial of death and all those things are the ego holding on. Because I, I've expanded my, my vision of what the of what life is after death. It's like okay, maybe we are electrical impulses or we're energy and somehow we go on. But Mark and Larry don't go on.
0: I know is there you any know, comfort? The ego, the the construction
1: of I our personalities right. is, is gone.
0: Right. So but do you find comfort in electrical particles? No, I don't, <laughs> not at all. It hard Horrifies me. <laughs> I want Larry. <laughs> yeah, right. Electrical particles with no consciousness. That's right. How that is that is, uplifting? Yeah, it doesn't help us. No, it doesn't no. help us at all. I did have a, good like, for the good
1: for the the cosmos. Uh, sure, you know, but sure, not for sure.
0: us. You know, be part of cosmic dust for eternity is something. <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right. That's all you're gonna get. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've been doing this bit on stage about how like I blacked out at the top of a mountain recently, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a sort of. Uh, a, a kind of a multi uh, leveled bit about you know my my girlfriend's passing and about death yes. awareness but 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 the when you black out have you blacked out recently no i have not have you ever no, i don't think i've you ever should. blacked you out should. you
1: should you know well i drank tequila when i was a teenager
0: and i think i blacked out then but, yeah, but that then, was the last time right but then people tell you what you did you, yeah, know, you exactly. wake up with vomit and right, you, you, you a, were still engaged in the world <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yeah but no i blacked out and i and, and i realized because I, I stretched and then I went down and I was by myself and then I came to with my face on the ground. But when I was out, there was nothing. Wow! And it was comforting. Wow! Because I realized, like, if I hadn't woken up, I wouldn't was fucking it. be the wiser. Right? And it wasn't. It wasn't horrifying. You know, it was. Uh, it was. It was okay. Uh, I don't want it. Yeah, but, but, but if it happens that quickly, God willing. You're right. That is a kind of a way to look
1: at it also. Like, when it happens, it's going to be over, and it's not going to matter what you think or feel or what anybody else thinks or feels. You're going to not exist anymore.
0: That's hard to wrangle, isn't it, though? Yes. Because I went to a, I went to an estate lawyer yesterday to redo my will, and you're having this, you know— They want me to do that. I'm about to start doing that myself. Well, you have well. to. And
1: I put it off, by the way, because I don't want to, like, make a, a
0: you know a definitive statement about my death. Yes. <laughs> that's exactly it, but that's, that's the horrible thing— I'm I'm sitting there with her, and all the paperwork that you have to sign it's all relative to you not being there that's correct and then the the, the sort of ego fight that happens in the moment is like you know well you, you know you're giving this person money all this money is that all right with you and I'm like the fuck difference does it make yeah. on some level but then your brain goes like well do they deserve it like, you know. <laughs> right then you got to weigh that but
1: it's also like it's not if you die it's like when you die right. what are you going to do so that when you die that definitive thing is too overwhelming and I've avoided that kind of conversation my entire
0: life oh yeah and she was very funny because there's that uh, you know the medical stuff like you know if you're, you're uh, you know on the machines or whatever right, right. Or medication <laughs> and she says yeah, I think you should this is important today the DNR the, you know, today you got to do that because yeah. who knows when you leave right. you're
1: gonna get hit by a bus as they say yeah i know that is fucking scary to me as I pardon pardon the cursing
0: no no he's cursed all you want oh, okay so uh i guess like where to start this stuff is i had a, a conversation about, you know with with my producer you know kind of like trying to process uh certain stuff like i watched dicks i watched the the new film uh-huh and uh it's it's kind of an amazing movie Thank you. Yeah. And Thank it's, you uh, very much. And it's amazing, you know, for all the reasons that, you know, you've sort of evolved as as a, a, a guy who's going to create stuff that's uh, jarring. Correct. Um, but it's pretty well balanced. Yes. In terms of... Uh, you know, the, it's it's not irresponsible in its crassness. Correct. It's it, not gratuitous. It's not gratuitous, and it's 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 sort of morally balanced. Uh, correct. It is. It's it's also a, a
1: weirdly, especially for me, a life affirming, very human movie. Well, I you think know? that
0: the choice to use a musical as the context, and to you know, it's a real uh, it's a real test of that genre. Yes, because you know, you 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 went out of your way. To uh to sort of obviously hire the best and the brightest in the musical racket. Yes, and so the songs hold. Yeah, and the actors are musical professionals: Nathan Lane, Megan Mullally, you know, and the two leads who yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, right. And, They're uh, from UCB, by the way, in New York. Oh, are, uh, and Megan Thee Stallion, you know these Megan people. Megan Thee Stallion, yeah. But uh, but what's sort of fascinating about it is the the element that makes musicals you know heartening. And powerful is is all in place with a sort of you know ridiculous and you know uh, uh you know kind of um, balls to the wall <laughs> yeah you know uh, offensive fest.
1: Well, you know, it's a, a musical is a unique, at least a modern musical. This musical was mm-hmm. a unique opportunity, at least as I saw it. To, the musical is such an artificial form. So the
0: musical existed before you chose to film it? That was an existing musical? No. They had a review at the UCB that was about 30 minutes
1: long, okay. that where they played all the roles. Okay, And it was a kind of a short little short story, sketchy version of what we wrote, what became this movie. You know, mm-hmm. And it took about a year to really develop it into a script that could be shot. But I love the form of the musical being artificial, so artificial that you can break the fourth wall—that you could talk directly to the audience, that you could interact with the audience—and I drew on a lot of influences from Stanley Donen and Gene Kelly and *On the Town* well, yeah, and I *Singing mean, the it, Rain*.
0: It, it, it's it, it, the musical is what it is, but it's also you know a deeply dug in genre of film, yes, that you know is as important in the history of film as any other. There's only a few, yes, and it was uh, you know something. Oddly, that became very popular during the worst times in our country. Interesting, too. Yes, right, right,
1: absolutely. I mean, post World War II is really when the musicals started to flourish.
0: Yeah, and you know. and so okay, so when you saw it at UCB, was this a an improvised exercise or was it a scripted thing? They have been doing it for. A, they have been working, you know,
1: working it for like five, eight years already. By the time I saw it on tape. And um, so it had been it evolved, but it was just always the two of them playing all the parts, and there was a lot of other things going on in the in the review that we didn 't wind up using in the play because we had to sort of create a screenplay. That would actually have some structure and kind of lead to someplace and have a little bit more of a story than the review does. The review, because it's thirty minutes long, they didn't worry about narrative and things like that. You know, well, yeah, and also tissue.
0: once you realize that you know, the way you set it up, uh, you know, with the with the one liners or the you know the idea that these are uh, two gay guys playing gay guys, I, I can't remember how, how yeah, you framed two, it.
1: Yeah, two two gay men, first time gay men have
0: ever written anything. That's yeah, the right. First thing yeah, said. yeah, playing straight man. Yeah. So it's already kind of ridiculous. But by Correct. the time the conceit of the thing unfolds, it becomes more and more absurd. But but there's because, uh, you know, when you say UCB, I have to assume that the idea of sewer boys came out of an improv. Probably so. And I, I don't even know
1: the origin. Yeah, of it, that. yeah it doesn't yeah. matter. But you,
0: yeah. you decided you had to manifest, it. manifest
1: yeah. it. Yes, that's right. Yes. As soon as I read the sewer boys or heard them talk about it, you don't see them in the play. And you don't see the vagina in the play play. But as soon as I saw those things were being talked about, a disembodied vagina and the boys I knew for the movie, I mean, I love science fiction. I love horror. I love making people scream in a movie theater, leading to laughter. So I thought those are going to be fantastic elements for the movie if we can manifest them in some way.
0: But but obviously as a riff, as something that's spoken, you know, it just functions as a joke. But yeah. once you realize it visually, it becomes a joke, but it also becomes something Grotesque, exactly, and, and 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 envelope pushing in a uh, way. I
1: love that. I love those. That's synthesis between the grotesque and the horror and the comical. Yeah, and I think like the naked fight in Borat. You know, these things were, were showing their asses and were showing their balls, and it's kind of gross and hilariously funny you're you're laughing despite yourself but that's, and getting to that point is a very cathartic moment i sure, think for the audience but,
0: but with borat you know in most of those things it's it's visceral in the sense that it it's just human flesh and people doing something right. vulnerable and and bizarre but when you're actually creating you know props yeah. like but there's there's a precedent for all of it i mean the vagina precedent is the plant in uh, in, exactly. the, in little shopahara's exactly. right little Shapaharas, i, I Like, I'm not a massive musical fan, but there were musicals that I
1: loved as a kid, like like Little Shop of Horrors. Funny thing happened on the way to the Forum because it was super funny. You know, there was a few musicals that I thought really spoke to me. Rocky Horror. You know, Rocky Horror. Uh, No, well, Fiddler I knew because my parents were so into it. Like, my Bar Mitzvah album has me, like, with uh, the sunrise, sunset, you know, through the picture and all that stuff. So, yeah, I'm aware of uh, those kind of shows, but I wasn't into them. Right. No,
0: of course. Yeah. Yeah, but it's part of the tradition. Exactly. Right. But the story is really these identical twins that don't really look alike, who didn't know they were identical twins, coincidentally live next door to each other, work at the same place, and then realize they're identical twins. And they're both in their 30s, and they decide that they, you know, they figure out that both the parents were, were separated and they didn't know about each other and that they're going to try to get their parents to get back together again. There's a twist in terms of, of how the uh, the brother's relationship evolves. Correct. Uh, but like for me... Well put, by the way. You've <laughs> <laughs> been doing this a while. Yeah, but for yeah. me... You know the 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 sort of bigger life of the idea, yeah, because Nathan Lane to play a you know a, a kind of dirty mouthed uh, older gay man yes. who, who is fine with that, and then the the idea of the sewer boys being there there was also something that the sewer boys is not just uh, absurd, correct? <laughs> and, yeah, and you know the implications of certain things, and the mother in the wheelchair that might not need the wheelchair whose vagina fell off, all of it seems <laughs> absurd but for some reason it reads as as human and and provocative in a deeper way. Yes. And then to have Bowen Yang as as a slightly I would say campy bordering on drag uh god. Correct. Uh was, and
1: camp by the way camp the the sensibility of camp plays yeah. a big role in the movie as well. For sure. Which people people uh before People, like people today don't really know what camp even is. And so being able to introduce those elements, this was, they, the guys used to call this, uh, they're doing straight camp. Yeah. You know, they're playing straight men. It's campy for them to play straight men. You know? Well,
0: how do you define camp?
1: Well, camp, I think, is is generally the gay culture exaggerating the straight culture. That's how I would I would uh, in, a, in a so that so that was in your mind from the beginning. Yes, very much because we come right out and say these because that's what the movie really is. It's two gay guys playing straight guys. That we tell you right at the beginning, and people laugh at that, and that also helps relax people when you get a laugh right at the top. People start to relax and they can kind of be more open to what's going to come. Like in Borat, again, to go back to that, yeah. the opening has the Kazakhstan TV station logo, and people just laughed at that. And then they were able to accept and flow with us. And then it becomes
0: a trip that we're all on together. Right, right. It, it, it's very different, though, because like I was thinking about the, the humanity at the, at the heart of, of all this stuff, because that was a conversation I had this morning in terms of, you know, where do you put comedy of this type you know with borat there the the vulnerability comes from his Empathy for normal people. Yeah. Really.
1: Yeah. And he's an innocent, really.
0: Here. Right. And so
1: all his, which gives you permission to go very far with the humor because he doesn't know any better. And here also, because it's, it's gay guys playing straight guys, you could go for straight, politically incorrect type of humor. Right. Because it's, you know it's a comment on that rather than adultery. Right. It's out. not
0: rooting, rooted in in sort of shock value, fuck you, woke Correct. people, whatever. Correct. Uh, but, but with Borat, though, a lot of the humor relies. On the vulnerability of the of the mark, correct, correct, and, and people were very
1: patient with him, actually, which helped with the humor to a large degree.
0: But but also it, it creates a sensitivity and uh, uh, an empathy with with people that we judge harshly as a group as being. You know, terrifying and, and possibly the the end of, of democracy.
1: Yes, that's right. Well, it's, it, it, you know, as, a, as the director in those situations, I found myself even having sympathy sometimes right. for a white supremacist or somebody because I knew we knew more than they did. You know, we always went in with much more ammunition than they knew we had. So they're kind of a little bit at the disadvantage in those dynamics. And sometimes I'd feel bad for the person, like, well, they really have no idea what the fuck is going on.
0: Well, but that's sort of the question (laughs) that, like, you know, was kind of, you know, in my mind about, you know, what what comedy is for. You know, and on the series where you uh, you, you sort of go to all these war-torn countries or authoritarian countries and do documentaries about what is happening there in comedy. What's it called again? Uh, Larry Charles Dangerous World of Comedy. Yeah, it was four parts, right? Yes. Yeah, is is that— You know, what is that about? Because, like, I'm not asking that. I'm just thinking out loud in the sense that, like, I was trying to figure out when you approach these people, these dupes, these, you know, foot soldiers of an ideology— is that where I come from in terms of my approach to comedy and into the audience? Is that like, well, these people obviously had childhood trauma; they're misguided because right, their brains right. don't work correctly. You know, they—they—it's they, yeah, not necessarily that they're salvageable, but it, it, it can be sympathetic. But after a certain point, it no longer does become sympathetic. But but that my approach is they're fucked up people.
1: Yes, right?
0: you're right; they are.
1: But I, but there's a mindset when you're shooting
0: like Borat. Of like it's there's a killer instinct. No, no, but I'm not judging that. What I'm judging is like you can d- judge it by the way. It, it's no, no, worth no, I, no. I, I, it, it's fine, you know, and I understand that there's a killer instinct, but somehow or another, it still balances itself out because I know you got to get these people to sign off on this shit. Yeah. So, but my point is, is like, how do we fix it? Right. Whereas, you know, I, I think that your comedy uh, doesn't deal with that. Right. And that going back to the documentary yes, series. Yes. Is that I think what we find after talking to Raul Peck about, uh, you know, growing up in these countries where, you know, authoritarianism and, and war is a constant from day one of your existence. Yes. So yes. you've integrated that experience into your being. Yes. It is the way life is. Yes. Now, we don't know that as Americans, but what I I, I understood this morning Is that not it's not that when you say comedy is courageous in these environments, certainly it is because of what it's up against. But it knows fundamentally on some level it's not necessarily going to facilitate change. Right. But but what it does facilitate is the defiance necessary to maintain your humanity. Correct. It reflects, it
1: reflects their reality. And that resonates with the people that are listening and watching what they're doing, even if they're just doing it on their iPhones. Like in places like Liberia, which are war-torn places, you walk down the street in the middle of Monrovia, Liberia, and half the people are amputees or missing eyes or whatever, and the fact that, that comedy kind of emerged almost like had a, a surge uh, in the wake of the Civil War and the Ebola is is the power of comedy there, you know? And it kind of gave people a place to turn, a little catharsis, a little connection to their community. It, it, it restored their humanity after having it stripped away by all these other things, you know? And
0: that, that is the thing, that, you know, like, when you talk about the the effect of of Lenny Bruce or the effect of, you know, a type of defiance in the face of of political uh, narrow mindedness or, or bad legislation, in how it relates to freedom of speech and whatever, that's sort of a different fight. Right, that, and that you know, and it's not that that Lenny's humanity wasn't present most of the time, and, and even more so as he got less funny. Yes. But but I think my misconception in in thinking about it, you know, previous to this morning was that, you know, that that comedy somehow, you know, serves a a point in in fighting the fight, which I'm, I'm not sure necessarily does what it does. The fight it's fighting is the the portal through which. You know, people can maintain their humanity as opposed to become sort of dead-eyed zombies or, or authoritarian stooges. Right, that's right. Well, even in this country, when you think about George now, Carlin,
1: You right. know, George Carlin was trying to do that as well. You know, and but the sad thing is, when I watch a George Carlin video from ten years ago, he's talking about stuff that hasn't changed. It's still like that today. You know, well, I think he's commenting, but the changes that you're talking about don't really wind up occurring. And they, they don't.
0: Not only do they not occur, but you know, for a some reason, because of the entitlement and the 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 comfort that we have here culturally, if you want to call that, yeah. outside of, you know, being a, a, a fundamentally distracting and disabling people's ability to deal with <laughs> almost anything. Right. The popular culture. That, that you know, Carlin at that point, the, the only way that, you know, he became full on like that is to really give zero fucks. That's right. That's right. And but, comedians today are having
1: trouble doing that. And that's why you're having this kind of... This comedy is in a weird transitional
0: phase right now. My point of view on it is it's 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 transitioning into something bad. Okay, and, interesting. and, and I'm that, not sure about that. Well, no, I mean I think it's become tribalized, and that's that, true. And and my point of view is is that once the the sort of the fight of uh, whatever it is anti cancel culture or we can't say what we what we want, which is total bullshit. I agree. Um, What happens with these pseudo-libertarians Uh, you know, who make comments that are are provocative, but their egos uh, feel like they're philosophers and have social momentum and that they're leaders of men, uh, that you know, what happens is they're not deep enough to realize they're being co-opted by a fascist ideology. Absolutely, they're being used. They are are pawns in the same game. Right. Uh,
1: Absolutely. People like Russell Brand, they're being used at the same time that they are using and exploiting. But
0: but yeah, well there's the grift at the base of it. There's the protection that, you know, speaking to that you know if you're speaking to the people that are intolerant and don't respect vulnerability or or apologizing then you've always got a livelihood yes. as long as you don't apologize right and but that's the trump that's the trump philosophy but that but he opened the door to that yeah. but what, but what i'm seeing is that that these egos that believe they're fighting some good fight are are being duped yeah. and, and but they're also making a lot of money so i don't know that they give a fuck that they're being duped so in light of that— Now you're getting into the capitalist system
1: itself also, which is what which eludes a lot of people. You know, they think they're making progress. They think they're helping. They think they're making change. But you're right. They're part of the system, really, that perpetuates all they, They're things. making money. And, yes. and in
0: their mind, winning is money. Correct. And, and that once that becomes part of comedy, it gets washed down. And then the, the thing that I noticed recently that bothers me the most is that once these tropes are set— by the reigning voices in comedy uh, and, and an ideological contact is set, which is anti-woke right, uh, right, uh, right. Or, or free speech, is that then you have thousands of hacks Correct. who decide that, like, oh, I guess I got to do my trans bit for you now. It's like, no, you don't. Right. There's four of them. But weren't those people also doing,
1: uh, you know, sort of cheap comedy back in the 70s? When I was selling jokes in front of the comedy store you know i used to watch all those comedians get up on stage and there was
0: only a couple of comedians who were brilliant no you know? no no hack is hack yeah but but when the the tropes of hackiness become you know um Focused and, and sort of uh, dismissive yes. of established, you, you know, uh, marginalized people or feelings where, like, you can't get past that. You, yeah. you feel like you have to jump. Like, so, it, like, there's always been hacks. Yes. But when does the, the hack become part of the momentum that's right. dangerous culturally? Right. Well, I
1: think that happened to us. That happened in the 70s and 80s, led to all those bad sitcoms.
0: You know, maybe the culmination. Well, bad sitcoms. is not, you know, like uh, uh, it's not uh, uh, crystal knocked. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. no,
1: that's true. <laughs> it would be interesting if it was. It'd be a good sitcom. Yeah, yeah. There's like that. There was that show like hey, Heil Hitler, uh, you know, I'm Home, or it was an English uh, sitcom. Did you ever hear about no, that no, one? No, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah, like Hitler lived, moves next door to a British family, and it lasted like one episode. But what, you what's your
0: what, what's your point that the, that the hacks led to a uh, 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 sort of mediocre status quo.
1: Yes, we had a we had a period, I, I knew a lot of comedians at that time who weren't very good, who weren't trying very hard, who didn't have any vision, didn't really have mastery no, of the it's language. It's always been a, 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 a grift. Yeah, but, it's it's, so, but it was a white it was a white thing, yes, yeah. white male thing to a large degree. And so what's changing now is it's not a in white the mainstream, male thing. In yeah. the mainstream. Yes, exactly. But the, the fringe stuff was very hard. I mean, I think Richard Pryor becomes very important in That's this conversation. That's sure, of course. He's the transition. Yes from the From the uh, uh, obscure to the mainstream yes and, and and exposing people and Carlin and all those people were influenced sure. by him, and so that expanded the language and that allowed good comedians to explore more interesting
0: things and bad comedians to make more cheap jokes, sure you know, you know it seems to me that what 's happening with dicks this new film is that You know, we are in a a moment in this country that, you know, is eluding most people, but it's real. Yes. Is that, you know, the threat is real. Uh, It's almost seemingly unavoidable at this point whether it's authoritarianism or or climate disaster yeah. and and you know what what i saw dicks as in this context and this goes back to the, there's two things that happened is that you know like sometimes i don't know how to contextualize john waters but you know if 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 dicks was not done professionally and with, was not done with real actors it would be a 1970 something john waters movie correct yes yeah and and so oh, i'm a, a massive fan of as why well why wouldn't you be yeah. but what 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 happens is in, in light of what we're talking about, is the humanity that you're you know defending and 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 speaking uh, with a voice of defiance in this movie are exactly the people that are going to be first against the wall. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's what makes this movie so uh, I think liberating,
1: possibly, uh-huh. because we are sort of like throwing the gauntlet down to all the entire audience. You know, uh, my brother who's a Trump supporter. Watched the trailer and he actually loved it, and he showed it to his friends who were all Trump supporters back in Long Island, and they were digging it. And my premise is always the been, whole movie, yeah. My premise because they don't, you know, they're looking for something to that's funny. Yeah, they don't really care about the the uh, the things that happen in so, the movie so, as much, so, so, specifically.
0: So, so they don't care, uh, you know. In they're the not sense, worried about it. they're not no, worried but, about but what gods, saying, you know. But that you went out of your way to balance that last musical number with with the fact of Bo, of Bowen Yang's. Gender. character. Yes, yeah. right. So, so, but they're not going to read that. Yeah. They just like what you're saying. Right, they don't care. And it,
1: that doesn't bother you. No, it All doesn't. Right. I, it, because I can't control it. Once it's out there, like when you make a joke on stage... You can't control whether the audience is going to laugh or not. Right. And this is the same thing in a movie theater. To me, once the movie's done and I have confidence in the movie itself, I let it out there and people are going to get what they get out of it, like a painting, Right. hopefully. They'll look at it and people will see different things and they'll go back. It's a very dense movie because I want people like a great album to go back and listen and watch again and again because it's all stuff that they missed as well. Sure. And so that to me is very important here to sort of provide something that can... of that actually seems like an obscure, esoteric thing, but that actually can have a mass uh, mass audience. I believe a movie like this can appeal to everybody because why? It's funny. It's actually funny. And you can sing to it. It's got great songs. Those two <laughs> things. My mother would love this movie. Sure. You know what I mean? I'm not
0: sure kids are going to be doing the musical.
1: Well, anybody over the age of 16 can see the movie. It's yeah. true. I we call it a fa- we call it almost a family film. Sure. You know, because kids, I guess, under the age of 16, maybe parents might my kids Probably could see it, but um, I understand
0: why people might have some restrictions. But the truth is, it's really for everybody. Sure, but the combination of of defiance in the face of oncoming fascism in in support of marginalized communities, LGBTQ, primarily. Yes. But but even there, there is you know the presence of. Megan the stallion and her number in it is not you know uh, I'm not overlooking that sure but but on on top of that is that what you get and I think what you like and probably you know before you were a more evolved person <laughs> just the, still trying man sure we all are but <laughs> that but that closing number is one of the great musical fuck yous yes. to half the country yes
1: there's a there's almost an, a, a more conventional ending before that moment and it seemed to us that it was wrong. Oh, before the brothers, right, right, right. There was a way to end it that would have been more conventional. People would have gone, "Oh, it's a nice," yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. But that was an interest of interesting to me. I wanted to push past that and and see how uncomfortable I could make people while still drawing
0: them in at but, the same time. Uh, but I felt that with with, with uh, you know Nathan's presence and Bowen's presence and, and even Megan Lally to a certain degree and their sort of total commitment to this thing, yes, uh, you know, and playing it straight as as musical performers, yes, that. Sadly, it felt like a a final kind of like, you know, fuck you to what we're going through because, you know, all, you know, on some level and you know, this this is just, if it becomes popular enough is going to feed the fire of the, the book burners and the abortion deniers and the the gay haters. Yes. But
1: they'll see the movie and like it. And then they'll burn the books and they'll burn the, the, and they'll hate the gays.
0: But the fact of the matter is, I can't control that part. No, I get that. You know? but, but 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 considering it that in, in talking about what we were talking about of working with an authoritarian uh, culture and yes. the possibility of it is that ultimately that doesn't matter because the courage of those people that you documented in your series was that they may be killed for this. Yes. Uh, or it may not be noticed or it may be steamrolled or appropriated by the dominant paradigm of, of authoritarianism. Yes, you know, But it's – the fuck you is necessary.
1: Yeah. Well, in those countries, in a country like, say, Liberia, yeah. where there is such uh, chaos and there's no currency and there's no b- the breakdown of the government, people make their art the way they can. And they reach each other the way they can. We have like kind of such a media monopoly system here yeah. that that in itself – is a, a, a kind of an authoritarian big brother sort of thing that we they've figured out over the years. They don't have to, like, you know, uh, make you— uh, they don't have to scare you. They have to seduce you. So we're all seduced by great TV shows and great movies, and we're distracted by those things, and we're then indulging in that same capitalist system, and there's no way it's going to change but, but, as long as we do that. But, but that's fine,
0: you know, if you— but, you know, the, the difference is is that if you can get the funding— Right. And it makes a little money, then you can work within it, which is also the problem with— uh, you I know. struggle
1: with that, by the way. I, I, I try to make things like, like Dangerous Comedy or even this movie. This movie is a very low-budget movie. I, I, politically for me, ethically for me, I find it um, offensive when movies cost $250 million and of the course. world is in the state that it's in. Yes. So that's the—I'm also looking to make a statement in the way these things are made, you know, uh, and using an integrated crew, for instance, which is almost unprecedented in my experience uh, behind the scenes, you know. So I'm trying to make those political moves behind the scenes also to make the movie
0: work on that level, too. But, you know? but what we learn about capitalism is, is that how, 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 how easily symbiotic it can become with fascism. Absolutely. So so, but, but. In that in that gray area, they you know, the capitalist system in the form of media companies is still willing to take risks if you can convince them that it's gonna make money. And if you can Correct. make it for no money, they're like, Well, fuck it's it's a win win. Yeah, that's, right. that's the, right. The worst that can happen is you know, we pull it or it just goes in the toilet. Yeah. The way I can make a radical work is by saying I could
1: do it for a little money, and the way they say yes to it is because they think, oh, that radical little work that's not gonna cost any money is gonna make money. Absolutely. That is the system. You know, I haven't figured I haven't been able I've been doing stuff on YouTube. I've been trying to figure out a way to get out of that, Mm. to move out of that. It's very, very difficult to do, you know, because YouTube is owned by somebody. You know, Instagram is owned by somebody. Everything, you know, it's very hard to get your word out
0: Get your thoughts. Well, yeah, out. but outside of that, you're you know the the amount of effort it has to take, even as somebody who's fifteen, <laughs> it's it's your whole life to try to get them something to surface on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, as old guys, you know, just on an energy level and also on <laughs> you know being savvy to the language of how most platforms work, we're we're a little at odds. Yes, that's right. We've allowed the, you know the the government has allowed those
1: regulations to fall by the wayside, so these companies can can operate without any supervision whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And they are, and and people think they're going to be discreet or somehow self-regulate, but we see that's not the case. Greed overtakes everything. Everything. In that, in that's adaptation. why. You know, that's why
0: the sky's on fire. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah. And I don't know. I I don't fully understand the blind spot, even on behalf of corporations that are run theoretically by human beings. That, right. You know, at what point? What I I talked about it in one of my specials that there's this idea that well we'll adapt to it. Yeah. That you know <laughs> after the case. Yeah. We fucked everything up. But let's get some minds on this and figure out how to. Make make money off yeah.
1: of it. Well, we'll adapt to it the way Philip K. Dick did in uh, whatever the book was where the people living on Mars oh, yeah. and they had the perky pats yeah. and they had to take the hallucinatory <laughs> drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how we're going to adapt. We're going to wind up just being you know, in a complete like TV environment, entertainment, distraction. We're almost there. And he was Uh, saying that we were living,
0: you know, that our modern life was a delusion. Yeah. And we were actually living as slaves of the Roman Empire. Well, that's like the, the, oh, right. That's sort of a matrixy thing. But it's also the only difference between reality and that is that, you know, we're just going to make this planet Mars. Correct.
1: That's right. That's that's exactly what's happening. They even have that TV show now, (laughs) Stars on Mars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they have that
0: already. But going back. To show us how it's going to be. Sure. Yeah, yeah, thank God we need that. Yeah, prepare well, I, yourself. I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be gone, I think. I always said that, but now it's sort of like, I guess I'm going to see the beginning. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Let's hang out for a while. Yeah, Let's yeah. see. But, but going back, so, you know, in the 70s, uh, because like I see you, because you had the. The benefit of being slightly older than me, you were able to fully appreciate this sort of, uh, you know, explosion of uh, insane filth and, and a, a certain type of lifestyle in New York in the 70s. Yes. You know, patriarchy aside, you know, what was happening comedically was, was pretty mind-blowing. Yes, I agree. I agree. Between and- prior,
1: there were the local comedians in New York playing those clubs. I mean, I didn't even get, I wasn't even old enough to get into those clubs, but I would see them on local shows and stuff like Where'd that. where
0: you, you grew up in the Long Island? In Brooklyn. Oh, that's right. So you were, yeah. You grew up a Trump in Trump Village. A Trump Village. Yes. Correct. So, did you see the old man? I saw the old man quite a bit. Yeah. Oh yeah, he yeah. would he come around make the rounds. Yeah, he looks like a uh, Satan.
1: Yeah, he's a very strange guy, and he would bring Donald along when Donald was like a teenager. Yeah, and it was Donald. He looked exactly the same sure. as he looks today. Same you know? vibe, same vibe, same hair. Yeah, always uh, had the long coat. And you well, know, what were they doing there? They were, they weren't fixing anything. Were they just know, the collecting little, money? The little league, yeah, they used to. The little league field was going to open, so they came to the opening of the little league field. Or there was a new thing at the building, and they would come to do something like that. They would you like, got presidents. I have a younger brother, and then I have um, oh, they Trumpy, um, the, the Trump. Yeah, yeah, he's a cool guy. I mean, yeah. he's a great guy. That's what I mean. It's like. When you talk that for me, I have talked to so many people who uh, I would disagree with vehemently about yeah. things. I realize, as you were talking about before, there is a humanity there, and I'm always curious about that humanity.
0: One on one, you can see the vulnerability. Absolutely, but I, now when they can just act anonymously on social media platforms or go to rallies, yes. it becomes a different. Uh, or nonsense. actually,
1: vote for the wrong person. Sure, you know, so that's bad too. Sure, not and that but there's it, a right person anymore. By the way,
0: right, it's right. I, I understand what you're saying, but 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 I think what's more disturbing is is you, you know how they manage their mind
1: yes how do you compartmentalize hate with humanity and it is inter-
0: it's an interesting phenomenon I think so when you're when you're growing up what are you doing you, you're, you're already a comedy fan early on I was oh, my father was a failed comedian who was that his
1: name his name uh, his professional name was Psycho the exotic neurotic <laughs> And he came out of <laughs> he came out of World War II, like a lot of the guys did, Buddy Hackett, Jan Murray, all those guys, wanting to be a comedian. There were a lot of them. I read that was it, John Berger book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's he, also I, the Lenny Bruce book, also the Albert Goldman book. Talks about
0: Hanson's and all those. But, but, uh, but it just talks about that there was an explosion. And explosion. there were guys doing each other's acts. There was Correct. Like, there was like a, at least a dozen guys performing in uniform. Absolutely. And it was just a, it was a racket at the dinner My club. father
1: used the GI Bill to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and try to become an actor. And he failed at that and he failed at the comedy and eventually fell out of it. But he was always at home on all the time. So yeah. I was exposed to a lot Had of comedy. the records. He, no, we didn't have records, actually, but he knew all the shtick, yeah. and he was constantly doing shtick, and he was constantly, instead of saying, did you do your homework, he would, like, we'd watch, like, Public Enemy, he'd ask me, like, uh, trivia questions. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so what business did he end up in? He he drifted through a lot of businesses. He eventually became like a, 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 a hospital uh, accountant, mm. and then eventually, towards the end of his life, had like a medical uh, supply business, a small thing. Did, in did he live long enough to see your success? Yes, but he was kind of competitive with me. Sadly, they and, always are. Yeah, and so when he, is that, How did that manifest
0: itself? He would say, uh, "I saw you on TV. You look fat." Oh yeah, you know stuff like that. <laughs> That's, you know, that's not competitive. That's a, that's a passive aggressive. Drag you down to his level. You know you I'll, can't succeed if I if, didn't. If I may, I I'll,
1: I'll tell you a perfect story about my father and fame mm-hmm. and my and my uh, success. I was working on Seinfeld. My father came to California, which he rarely did. Yeah. And he said to me, right from the time he got he arrived, he said, I want to take a picture with Jerry. Yeah. And I said, look, Dad, I don't ask people for favors. Yeah, 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 That's yeah. how I get a buy in life. Yeah. I don't ask anybody for anything. I don't owe anybody. Yeah. They don't owe me. He's like, I really want that picture. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so and so he, he, the week went by. He kept on hawking me about it. Yeah. On Friday, the last day he was here, he's like, come on. I want to take that picture with Jerry. I, was like, I, I relented. And I brought him to work. In Studio City, and I went up to Jerry, who's a very graceful. Yeah. I said, Hey, my dad's here, you want to take a picture with you? He's like, Yeah, sure, come on. We went outside, take the picture. Before we took it, Jerry said, You know what, Larry, let's take a the three of us. Right. So we took a picture with the three of us, then my father said, I'd like to get one with just just me and Jerry. (laughs) So he took the one with him and Jerry. Also, about a year later, I'm in his house in Long Island. and on the mantel is the picture of him and Jerry. Sure. <laughs> you know, and of course. That says it all about uh, who he was. And I what think. about your mom? My mom was a, a, a saint. Mm. She was a sweet lady. She was killed in a, uh, she was like at the, enjoying her life in Florida, and she was killed in a car accident. And uh, like the nicest, pr- my father, who was kind of a prick. Yeah lived to be 91 mm. my mother was like cut short and sad. so unfair you yeah, know yeah, and sad. uh and that's one that they I, were retired already yeah yeah, yeah well yeah. my father had just retired really but they were they, together they were not together oh, okay. they had broken up but my stepmother and my mother died the same week wow and that kind of broke my father i think to some degree sure and he started
0: to to kind of drift after that oh yeah it's so it's it you know it is the 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 big payoff is not great no no the and also the the that's
1: another th- illusion that we sort of labor under is like the peaceful death, you know it just doesn't work that way, man, you know mm. you're not usually in bed surrounded by your family, it's like you passed out in that on that mountain that, that could have been it for you, yeah, you know alone exactly. alone
0: on a fucking mountain like yeah. Julian sands, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's there's always plenty of options to think about. <laughs> That's right. And I think you and I are the kind of people that think a lot about them. <laughs> I, I really try not to, but there are moments where, like, if you go deep with it, you, you know, like, I do have moments where I'm, like, going to bed and I'm like, this is it? Yeah. Is it, is it, am I gonna... What about in the middle of the night? Right. I mean, am I going to wake get. up? Right. Yeah. But but if I really go deep with the existential terror, you, you know, it, it it's literally unmanageable. Yeah. And that something clicks in. That that stops it, and yet that dread is a completely appropriate reaction. Yeah. to our lives, of course it, they're dreadful. I apply it to everything.
1: Yeah, and I think that filter really works. I mean, it's a re- that's a reality for us. You know, that kind of keeps us grounded. But to there's, have see, that there's dread. people
0: that 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 sort of program themselves to to not experience it. Yes, in 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 light of their own uh, selfish, uh, specific worlds, but not comedians. <laughs> no, not many of them. Some of them, like, uh, I think... Uh, are there well-balanced comedians? <laughs> I think they're... I, I've learned over the arc of, of doing this show and talking to many of them, there are a few well-balanced comedians, but there's more well-balanced people who come out of sketch and improv. Right, Because they, they know how to work with other people. Right, that's
1: so true. I mean, the solo quality of being a stand-up. Yeah, you gotta
0: be a fucking w- lunatic. Yeah, yeah. A you know, broken
1: s- person. Right, right, to yeah. need that love. However, I also believe having worked with a lot of comedians too, that the experience of being on stage and having the love uh, from the audience is like a chemical
0: longevity potion in yeah, a way. But but I'm not unlike you, and, and I and from what I hear, I'm not unlike Larry that, that I would defy that love. Yes. Like I, you know, whatever of I'm looking for, I, it may be to honor what I was presented with as a child as love, but I don't buy it. Right. And and I'd much rather, you know, as soon as they like me create some discomfort correct correct and alienate them somehow sure but yeah. there are plenty of comics that just
1: yeah. you know eat it up exactly and I think like uh, like I'm friends with Billy Crystal he's yeah. somebody I, I remember seeing George Burns when I was young uh, I used to write for David Steinberg when I was when I was like uh, you know in, the, in my teens yeah and um, he would take me to the Tonight Show or things like that and I'd meet Johnny Carson and stuff and I remember George Burns before he went on he would be sitting in a chair like he was like a rag doll yeah and they go listen <laughs> gentlemen George Burns and so he would come to Life, hundred years old. He was in there. Yeah. He was he was rocking. You know. So there's something about that wave of love. But, Even if you are rejecting it, it's still permeating. But, but it's
0: connectivity. Yeah. You, you know, it, it's being seen. Yes. And 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 having a, an, an experience. It's a public experience, and you're being. You know, you're. You, yeah. It, I, I have a hard time framing it as love, but yeah. it's something. But, but just, beyond the psychological uh, element of it, there is a chemical
1: element as sure, well. Of I course, believe. of course. You're yeah, having yeah. a
0: dopamine rush. Something like that is going but, and on. For me, because of how I do it there's no autopilot so you're you're never more connected than you know on stage in that dynamic yeah well the great Great comedians to me are like jazz
1: players, you know, and so you are going to adjust and play and feel and let that show be different than the next show or the last show. I am. Some yeah, don't. Yeah,
0: I agree. I'd say I say so, it's half and half.
1: Right. Some people really get stuck in their in their acts. Yeah. But really, and it's so you know, like I love Paul McCartney. I know he's been on your yeah. show, Paul, and I love Bob Dylan. Yeah. You know, but Bob Dylan, you will never see the same song performed the same way sure. with Bob Dylan, and with Paul McCartney, he can still nail. The Beatles recordings, you know, sure. and that's the, kind of the two ways to sort of look at that live performing thing.
0: Yeah. Well, there's 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 big show business yeah. and, and then there's the little fuckers like me. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, Dylan also. Sure. Well, Dylan's a big fucker. Yeah. Uh, in, he's a big in, fucker In man. big show business. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I think that- He uh, defies all these rules, by the way, for some course, reason. Of course. But I, I, I think it's wrong to, uh, I, I think you really have to give him credit as being one of the great comedians. Uh, in in so many ways,
1: I completely agree with you. And most people don't get his. He's so funny <laughs> that most people don't really get his humor. <laughs> yeah, and, he yeah. And, and the thing is, he doesn't care. Of course, that's the but, key but, to Bob. But
0: there's a uh, there's a moment w- that for me really sort of nails him. It's in that Rolling Thunder movie, whatever the hell that was. That Ronaldo, Ronaldo and Clara. Yeah, but no, the one that Scorsese did. After, oh right, with right, footage right, No from direction that. home. Yeah. Right. Well, there's a, a moment where he gets off stage after the first performance, right? And I think it was a reporter goes hey, Bob, how do you feel?
1: And he goes, about what? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly, you know, I spent two years with him, you know, writing this and making this movie with yeah, him, yeah, you know. And he, oh, right. I, when I, in Don't Look Back, there's a great moment where a girl's yeah. running up to the limo and going, yeah, can yeah. I get your autograph? And he says, I'd give it to you if you needed it. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, they drive yeah. away, you know, it's yeah. like he has, or like, how did he, I had people come up to him all the time when we were doing the movie uh, yeah, and they go, what was it like going electric? And, and he's like, oh, what was it like for you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: And then they don't have an answer and he walks away. Or he so, also has another thing where It's a, can,
0: it's a Socratic brain fog. Oh my
1: God. He will do things like you'll ask him a question, not me. I actually wound up having a good rapport with him, but I'd see people asking him a question and he would just not answer. Well, yeah. I mean,
0: well, do you break all the the, the rules? Jerry the does social- that. Yeah. Oh, he does. Yeah. As now. Yeah. 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 But uh. But no. But the the thing about Dylan is that like if you if you go back far enough. Yeah. You you kind of know what he is. and You know who he is. He's like you know this sort of displaced. He's always been that guy. Displaced Jewish kid. That's right. (laughs) Who grew up uh, you know uh, worshipping people and then he would appropriate them. And then kind of you know put it through the Dylan mill. And kind of evolve. But now you know for me, I I'm kind of weird about him in that like. Yeah, because he puts out a, a, whatever these albums are, The Last Record. I was like, Do I do I need a fucking eighteen minute song that mentions Don Henley? That's why I got <laughs> I, I, I got I got hung up on that. I'm like, well you gotta bring Don Henley into it. I got nothing against Don Henley, but why is he in the fucking song? And then but 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 there's a point where it's like, look, man, who if if Dylan wants to die on a bus, so be it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think he's okay with it. he's somebody who has
1: come to some terms with this. You know all these questions that we're asking. He has kind of transcended it right? in every
0: song. There's like there's like there's like nine or ten pivotal Dylan songs where you know he's dancing around the question. You know elaborately.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. O- always, always exploring it from different a- aspects in rough and rowdy ways, which is the last album. That's what I'm talking about, right? Uh, the, the Kennedy song, the murder most foul. That's where he f- mentioned fucking Henley. Yeah, I see. I love that song though. I mean, why there was something that really I. Don Henley aside okay. for a second, the idea of him sort of recounting a, almost like a bard-like retelling of the death of John Kennedy, yeah. I found very moving. I think he's talking about the conspiracies. He's talking about all the realities sure. surrounding the death and how the country has basically gone downhill since
0: then. And he's written some version of that song you know, every 10 years. That's true. And he, that's something that really kind of plagues him, I think,
1: on some level, is the way the country has sort of evolved. But that movie you know, is difficult for most people. Yes. They, they, most people don't even know it exists, I yeah. find, uh, which is interesting. And then they see it, and again, it provokes yeah. in very good Ways also, and it's also more prescient. It's like actually kind of prophetic, uh, ironically and inadvertently today, uh, because it really talks about the very again, like we're talking about George Carlin. We talked about things in that movie that still exist today: the poverty, the homelessness, all that kind of the 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 encroaching fascism of the country a third world america controlled by you know sure. despots
0: yeah and but, you know his genius is like uh, it's it's delivered to him and i and i think that like you were yes. you were given the privilege through either persistence or time to 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 appreciate the fact that like he's a jewish guy i can interface
1: with that's right exactly ultimately we had that connection yeah. it was
0: very simple yeah.
1: really in the way
0: yeah and and he gets it
1: yeah yeah you know
0: yeah. but but there's a couple of moments with him where, you know, that moment on the, on the Grammys where Shanling.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: That's one of the most, that's one of the best comedic moments I've ever seen in my life where, you know, Nicholson is presenting Dylan with that <laughs> Lifetime Achievement Award. And they're, they're both, you know, Dil, you know Nicholson's high right. and Dylan's like, you know, pausing where he's like, well, oh, it's like my dad always said, you know, and then <laughs> this long pause, and he said a lot of things. You know, <laughs> like, and then, like, you know, it, it's right. just like the most awkward moment. And then it, they go to commercial. And Shanlin comes back and says, I was just backstage. Uh Bob Dylan and Jack Nicholson were just discuss- discussing how sh- they should do more television.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, the great, the thing I admire so much so much about Bob is that he does not give a shit. No, it's great. He can have these awkward moments, these embarrassing moments. He's had more public humiliations and failures than any popular person.
0: Yeah. And he's still here doing it, and, you know? And he's doing a lot. He's, yeah. He's, he's welding things. Yeah. Yeah, because I called Rosen. I called Rosen, you know? And I was like, you know, I was trying to get Dylan on the, whatever, the thousands. Episode. Right. And you know, we you know, and, and yeah, the bookers were like, That's you know, a may, tough one. maybe you write him a letter, and I wrote a letter like a fucking schmuck. And then <laughs> they said, Why don't you call Jeff? You know, and I and I'd met him before, and I said, Jeff I just, is great. Yeah. So I call Rosen up and I and I do this whole spiel. And I'm like, hey, look, man, you know, you I think you know the show. I've met you before, and you know, we're doing this thousandth episode. I've interviewed a lot of presidents and whatever. <laughs> and you know, to, you know, and it'd just be a real honor if I could, you know, get Bob to do the thousandth episode. You know, what what are the chances of that happening? happening and he goes zero <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was straight with you yeah yeah but you know
0: the thing is bob is the kind of person that
1: he'll go uh you know i like that mark marin uh, sure right give right me, yeah. give me on the show throw him you a know, bone yeah yeah, yeah he'll yeah, do yeah. he'll
0: do weird stuff that sure, just, man. it just it just kind of stri- strikes him in the moment yeah yeah so so going back to the 70s so yeah. your dad's doing uh, you know, his shtick and whatever right, but yeah but how do you get into comedy well, I, I started, um, you know, I, I was, like, really into
1: comedy. I was watching TV. I was the kind of person that used to uh, memorize the comedy writer's credits, yeah.
0: like, on Laugh-In
1: and did stuff like read, that. Did you
0: read My Favorite Jokes at the back of Parade Magazine? Do you remember that? No, uh, I, because my father didn't get the Daily News. Oh, right. We only yeah. got the
1: New York Times. Right. So I did not read that. But I used to watch The Comedians on yeah. Ed Sullivan. Sure. And I was very into it. I loved Getting laughs in school, yeah. being the class yeah, clown yeah, kind yeah. of thing. And so I didn't know how to break in. Woody Allen really was the person that that kind of gave me an insight into a path. Yeah. Which was he was from the same neighborhood and he started writing jokes for people. Right. And I thought, well, that might be a way that I could get in yeah. by writing jokes. And when I came out to California. When was, when was this? This was like 77, 76, 77. But were you doing stand-up? No, no. I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. But I was writing jokes yeah. on a yellow pad in yeah and handwriting.
0: Yeah, for a comedian.
1: Yeah, and I would go to the comedy store and I'd stand in front of the comedy store in the 77. Yeah, and I would say, "Hey, uh you want to buy a joke? if I recognized the comedian Tom Dreesen, Joe Restivo, yeah. all these obscure comedians at the time. Well, Dreesen's back." He, yeah, and he's a yeah, he's a survivor. And but they would buy they would look at the joke and they'd buy a joke. They'd say like Jay Leno was the first one that really bought a joke from me. And he said, I'll give you $10 if it works on stage. Yeah. And you know how the comedy stories you could watch through walk the window. Up. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I saw the thing get a laugh. I got the 10 bucks and I started being a person that you can come to for jokes. And you how old? I was like 19. Yeah. And, uh, one of the comedians was a guy named Darrow I guess a black comedian. And he got cast on the show Fridays. Right. And he, I was back in New York at that time. I kind of quit LA and I came back again, and he had recommended me for the show Fridays. And I went in, and I got the job. And then I met Larry David there. So you didn't do stand-up? I did stand-up here and there. I was not—you know, you have to be the best version of yourself on stage well, to I be mean, a great but, stand-up. Well, well, you didn't give it a chance, but like— what, right, what I didn't what, give it a chance. What was, was your angle? I, I used to come out—like, I would do things like I would dress like a Hasid. Yes. And rap, you know— the like to fill in. you know, I mean, I was like— um, Whatever. Yeah. Whatever it took. I did bits, but I wrote good jokes for some reason. I was able to write good jokes, and I was able to sell those. And I saw my my stand-up career wasn't good. I was working places like, do you remember a place like John's Place on Vermont? There used to be these obscure little clubs all over the city No,
0: it was before my time.
1: That's when I used to go on stage in those kind of places. And... I never felt that I was really doing the best version of it. Well, who, is I, that, who was
0: around at that time that made an impression on you that you were seeing live that nobody knows? Well, anymore? I was able to see prior. Sure. Uh,
1: and at that time, there were a couple, there was a guy named Tim Havey who wound up committing suicide. There hmm. was a number of comedians who didn't make it.
0: Yeah, of know, course.
1: And there were some guys that were really super funny and just couldn't keep their shit together. Yeah, sure. You know, like yeah. Lenny Schultz back in New York and people yeah, like that, Lenny you know. Lenny
0: Schultz. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he was he, he he was at it a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked. He couldn't keep his shit together, right. but he was the, you know, the human uh, incarnation of filthy chaos. That's true. That's true. So and I guess was there was an spectacle. audience That's true. His son was coming around for a while. I don't know what he was doing. Really? That's yeah. weird. Yeah. Omar Sharif's
1: son came to the uh, the screening. I thought that was kind of weird.
0: Huh. Yeah. yeah. They're around these kids. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The well, ne- that was a, that was unsuccessful successful a... nepo babies. Sure. Yeah. 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 They, they do those, exist. They outnumber the <laughs> successful ones. Right. Uh, but, but, uh, but that's a, a fairly prescient and and uh, uh, responsible, uh, thing to realize that, that, you know, you have this talent and you don't have to do this thing that's killing people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, also being on stage made me fucking sick. Yeah. I couldn't,
1: I was somebody who would vomit before I went on. Yeah. And I thought, this is crazy, you yeah, know? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to, you know, I, I can't do it. But I do, I'm much more comfortable with myself now so I'm more comfortable kind of like talking to an audience and stuff
0: like yeah, that. Yeah. So so you, you, you get pulled into Fridays and you meet Larry and you right. meet uh, Michael Richards. Uh, Michael Richards. And- yeah. There were some other people on that crew. I can't remember who they were or what happened to them, but I remember watching that because yeah. everyone, when I was a kid, it was an SNL person. And you're like, "What's this thing that they're doing over right. there?" Yeah, but I mean, it was. We had some great uh, bands also. I used to. To me, that was
1: almost as exciting as anything to hang out with the Clash, smoking yeah. spliffs with the Clash. Sure. You know, yeah. uh, the Boomtown Rats. Yeah. We had a couple of really cool bands on that show. And what, how, what was the first uh, I- interaction with Larry? At our first writer's meeting, he's about 10 years older than me. So at our first writer's meeting, he starts talking, and I could tell he was from Brooklyn. Yeah. I didn't know anything about him. Yeah. And we immediately just kind of Gravitated towards each other in that first writer's meeting, yeah, and connected, yeah, and that was it. We became f- friends, and he really more he became like a mentor to me, yeah, because I was a parking valet before I got that job. You know, that was the only Out real. Sh- yeah, I was to park cars at Century City, yeah, places like that. And so he kind of helped me become a writer. Really, he kind of showed me the discipline and the craft a little bit of how to take my ideas, which were good, and focus and make them into a, a coherent sketch. Did you go do stand-up with him I watch him? I watched him do stand-up. I saw him storm off stage many times, you know, and spit. I saw him spit at, at, at the Rising audience. Star? Yeah, I saw yeah. him spit at the audience. You know, I work with Belzer a lot also. Oh, so awesome. I was Belzer. So I was at catch a lot. was a sweet guy. Oh, he was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah Another man. inadvertent mentor to me. I mean, he was just really always very paternal to me. I was lucky that those guys were so nice to me and so generous to me and let me sort of watch and observe and absorb. Well, they
0: are two opposite. They're opposites to the sides of the same coin is where Bells was sort of like, you know, kind of let it roll off him. Yeah. And, and didn't, uh, you know, invest as personally uh, as Larry did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Larry was very, you know, Larry's a very generous person. Sure, no, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I always
1: felt Not generous with this show, I'm going to add again. because <laughs> he ha- He's the other person you haven't gotten on. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, I made a documentary. You know, during COVID, I actually shot a documentary with Larry. I did a, like a two, hour, a four hour conversation with him. Yeah. that I cut in with clips. and Everything it was great. Yeah. And um, they, for reasons that I'm not going to get into now, they pulled it on yeah. the day of the premiere. So it's never been seen. It was supposed to be on HBO, like what, like in
0: January? Yeah. What the so fuck? So I had an issue with him. Also, we actually haven't spoken since then. Oh, so it was on him. Hey, hey yes. So he's got okay, okay. He was. He wants to maintain the mystery.
1: Exactly, I yeah. think that's exactly what's happened to him, which wasn't the way he was. He's kind of uh, kind of entered that realm a little yeah. bit more than he was at one time. Um, so,
0: so you write Fridays, and you're yeah. just churning away. You're learning how to construct arcs and and, and yeah. seeing through the But
1: writing about anything that I feel like, which is incredible, you know, if I wanted to do a science fiction parody yeah. or
0: a movie parody, whatever it was, I could do it. It was really fun. But when do you when do you sense you know, and obviously, Larry. You know, not necessarily material-wise, but as a person. When do you sense that, you know, you are are com- compelled to push buttons? That's a good question. I, You know, it's interesting. I
1: think long before I got to the TV show, I was somebody that enjoyed pushing buttons, that enjoyed fucking with people, that um, enjoyed using my verbal skills to yeah. sort of manipulate. You know, I think I had a sociopathic kind of tendency— to to take advantage of, you know, whatever my skills were. So I liked pushing a button. I liked seeing people upset or throwing people or fucking with people. I always enjoyed that even as a kid. And in my neighborhood, it was a very cutthroat neighborhood.
0: And the insulting and the abusing was part of the dynamic of growing up. And also, I think when you have sort of a, a grandiose or narcissistic or steamrolling father, yeah, you know, there, you, there, there's only a few instinctual ways to get in there.
1: That's that's very true as well. Very true. You know, I never even thought about that actually.
0: You, you know that they're like I, well, I, I. I really thought about it recently in a conversation I had with some guy uh, who quit comedy recently. That you know when you have that overbearing thing and these guys that are you know controlling one way or the other, maybe not disciplinarians, right. But just erratic emotionally and, yes. and needy, that, needy, but yeah. but bla- you know but you know, kind of big, right? Relentlessly needy, <laughs> right? You know, just to keep them at bay, yeah, you've got to yeah. be able to. Well, that's fuck the with ego. Them. My
1: father's ego was completely unchecked. Yes, and since he had no satisfaction and fulfillment in his life, it it even it sort of
0: grew in very perverse ways. Right. So to to do what that what that skill of 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 fucking with people it buys you a little space. Yeah, and it's it keeps you from being consumed. Yeah. by whatever. Yeah, I'm safe inside my own head. Yeah,
1: yeah. And here Yes. Of my
0: defenses. Right. These are my know, protections, you know, my armor. Go fuck yourself.
1: Yeah. My, and that was an armor to some sure, degree. Of I course. Agree. Yeah.
0: And especially in Brooklyn, it was a survival tactic. Sure. You know. And and so when do you, like, when do you start noticing that, you know, comedically, I guess it was probably with Seinfeld, where you want to, you know, push the envelope a little bit and and something, you know, the, the, The collective kind of harnessed you
1: maybe a little? Well, you know, I was never somebody that was only into comedy. I think like you, I have very eclectic tastes. Yeah. So I didn't know what the – I didn't wasn't thinking about a career even when I got that. What job. else were you into? I was into – like I, I thought I was going to wind up being like a Bukowski like writer, write sure. little short stories, yeah. Work in the post office. I would have been pretty cool with that yeah. actually. Right. Then I thought, well, maybe I'll just be a comedy writer. I'll just sell jokes and be freelance. At that time, you could still be a freelance person. You know. Yeah. There was a way to do sure, that as sure. a writer. And I. What's well, coming back? Yeah. I would write. Uh, yeah. Right. Exactly. But I would write articles. I wrote. I wrote porno for scre- uh, porno humor for, for Screw scre- magazine. I wonder,
0: I was going to bring up uh, 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 Al, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. because the last time I saw Another
1: inadvertent,
0: uh, inadvertent mentor. You know. Of course. You know, and that's why I said at the beginning, you know, patriarchy aside, the last time I saw Goldstein, he was working at J&R Cigars. Oh, man. You know, he, was, he was like a fixture at J&R Cigars, and I think it was primarily because he could just smoke all fucking day, <laughs> and he was broke. Yeah. If, he, if Penn Gillette wasn't helping him out, I don't know, you know that wow. guy was- Yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah. He took a big fall. Totally. Yeah. But but Screw Magazine was sort of ever-present yeah. in this weird way and yeah. in, in, in kind of maintained its underground status.
1: Yes. Well, and, and for me, it was like, it was a very transgressive thing. It was. Yeah. You know? And and like, and my friends were very transgressive. And so to make my friends laugh, I had to go, we were into sick humor, you know, like what they would accuse Lenny of. We thought that was hysterical, dead baby jokes or whatever it is. But that was it, what Lenny it, gave know.
0: the culture. Yeah. Right? Exactly. and And sort of it took off through- uh, uh, through filth mags right. and in, with the writers, with, with Friedman as well. Yeah, uh, and, 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 uh, Bruce J. Friedman. Sure. Jerry Stahl, yeah, you know, to a yeah. degree was writing for those uh, magazines that it was all mutual friend of ours. Yes. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but see like, you know, that to me, that was the heyday of, of stuff and, and both, you know, as it evolved, the left and the right began to have a problem with it. Yeah. And, you know, I get it, but, but it's sort of amazing to me, you know that it's it's very hard to capture the menace uh, of of a smaller cultural world that those things held for people who were gravitated towards yeah. them but also as you know touch points in the culture well to, to i remember
1: walking down the street in Brighton Beach Avenue when i was when i was in elementary school and I had, like, a little bit of, like, a quarter or something of 50 cents. And there used to be used bookstores along. Yeah. Beach, And I, would, I went into one bookstore and, and liked the cover of Catch-22. And it was a quarter. Yeah. And I bought that book, like, in sixth grade and read it. And, you know, those kind of, it blew my mind. It's like, you could be funny talking about death. Yeah. You could be funny talking about
0: all these forbidden, verboten type of things. Sure. That, for some reason... It takes one thing. It blew my mind. I mean, for me, it was uh, looking at a collection of underground comics in a B. Dalton bookstore. Absolutely. Uh, at some Spain panel uh, you know, and also some <laughs> R. Crumb stuff and I was like, oh my God.
1: Yeah, the R... After being a Mad Magazine person to get sure, me the, too. the Lampoon... That was, yeah, it was mind-blowing. And then Z- and Zap, Zap Comics. Totally. That, those were all... So these were all... And in the 70s, everything was kind of blowing up. Like that, it yeah. Was I wrote great. the
0: I wrote the foreword for Drew's book, uh, the oh. portraits of the underground comic artist. I love the uh, I love Drew's work. But I was with I was with CK like one day just fucking around in the village. We went into a blockbuster, and there was a, a bargain bin, and he I saw him buy Putney Swope, <laughs> right? And he had never heard of it, right? And it changed his entire right. fucking approach. See, to I filmmaking. saw those movies
1: in the theaters. Yeah, used to go into Manhattan, and you could see Putney Swope and Greece, yeah. and, and uh, or Greece's Palace. It was called the other movie yeah. of his, or you could see pink flamingos, or Rocky Horror, or Italian movies, you know, like Rossellini, or God- I was a Godard freak. Sure, you know, I mean, I wanted to see things that broke the rules, and I think all of that stuff just kind of I absorbed, and that became my sensibility somehow. Yeah, but I like that this movie, on, on a very real way, is, is an homage to Waters. Uh, absolutely uh, you know I, I, when i was in high school uh, my parents got divorced we moved my mother moved us to florida yeah i went to high school in florida yeah. and i met a girl finally and i had a date finally with a girl i was like really lonely and i took her on a date to the movies and i took her to see um, female trouble. <laughs> and she never spoke to me again. Yeah, yeah. But I was turned on to John Waters. Yeah. And that had so much of an impact on my life. Yeah. John Waters' sensibility. It's like, wow, how did he... Because I used to think to myself back in Brooklyn, how do these people get this these movies made? Yeah. He got his parents to actually... Uh, finance Pink Flamingos, which yeah. was good. But it was like still shocking to me that you can go to a movie theater and see Divine eat dog shit. Yeah. I couldn't believe it, you yeah. know?
0: But I wanted more. so funny. You're yeah. the kind of guy that's sort of like, this is like the moon landing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. It was so mind-blowing, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't believe that somebody would
0: do that, and I couldn't believe somebody filmed it, and I couldn't believe I was sitting in a movie theater watching it. But But it's interesting because it's not, you know— it, 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 you know, given your skill set, it's it's not funny per se. Right. It's just it's just fucking you know ballsy. Yeah. And 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 insane. Yeah. And and completely uh, counterculture. Yes, exactly. All those things that appeal to me. Yeah. But could I
1: add a could I add a wave of laughter to it? Uh-huh. You know, could those things that were ballsy and outrageous and shocking and even disgusting lead to massive laughs? And that's what I started to explore. I wanted to do things that weren't. I wanted to make fun. I wanted to do comedy about things that weren't normally well, funny.
0: Well, right, but but you were in, in, enabled to to write like many of the best early Seinfelds, and you know you were uh, uh, rewarded for that. Yes, but ultimately in the arc of it, would you stay there for like six seasons? Four, four. Yeah, where where, where did you feel uh, uh, tethered? Did you feel hampered? Yes, did you?
1: yes I did. I mean, I, I, at the beginning, I was I was just simply grateful. But I remember saying to Larry one day when I was struggling with a story. You yeah. know, I never really thought of myself as a comedy writer. And he said, "I wish you had told me that before." <laughs> you know, so so I used to try to find premises that wouldn't normally. And but the great thing, but about, you thought yourself a joke writer? Yes, uh, yes, I wanted to make sure they were funny. Yeah. But I wanted to see if I could make fun of. Situations that wouldn't normally be funny, yeah. like death and things like sure. that, which I brought a lot of that. I had, like, psycho killers and all kinds yeah. of murder and yeah. horrible things happening sure. to Seinfelds, but they were funny also, yeah, right. you know? so, so that's that was, where you earn that. That's right. And Jerry and Larry were, luckily for me, again, extremely encouraging. Yeah. They didn't try to... Uh, um, Steer me in any direction. They wanted me to do my version of Seinfeld, which was great. And then maybe they would change it a little sure. bit. But mainly those shows are fairly intact,
0: the ones that I wrote. But they also knew that you were a, a specific talent and you were uh, inspired. And they knew ultimately that, like, we can always change this or that. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. But also there was a,
1: for me, there was like a George Harrison quality, which, which is how I started to feel a little more trapped there yeah. after four seasons yeah. because I wanted to get more of my songs on the albums. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, sure. And I was never going to be able to do it with Paul McCartney and John Lennon being in charge. Yeah. You know, and so I had to, I left the show, even though I could have stayed forever, I left the show because I needed to do something else. I needed
0: to, to to explore another part of myself. But but so so how did that go? Because you ended up doing more TV writing. Ultimately. I did, I did. Because I wasn't, I wasn't really like focused
1: on, I, I had given up the dream I had thought about being a director a lot. And yeah. on Seinfeld, I would stand with Larry during the rehearsals, and I would say to him, because the director was a very conventional TV director, yeah. and I'd go, you know, you should cut over to this guy yeah. or get a close-up on him. And I was doing a lot of that, yeah. right? But I thought as I left Seinfeld that, you know, I was being offered a lot of money to be a showrunner, yeah. to do that kind of work. And I had a family, and I thought to myself, you know what? I have to give up on the dream of directing. Yeah. And I gave up on it, and I did a couple of TV shows, Found that I was still super unhappy, you know. Which and one? Mad about you. I did not mad about you. I mean, it was it was it was nice, and they were great, but I didn't. I was I was tortured at that yeah, time. Sure, you know sure. And I did the tick, you know, and I did a couple other of these things. Dilbert. And you did the Dilbert. I did Dilbert. with What Scott do you think of Adams. that guy
0: going a little? off do you Pe- see that coming? people are going off these days
1: you know i, I can't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's something in the air it's like yeah. the invasion of the body He yeah. he's a brilliant guy and yeah. he's a fun guy yeah i really enjoyed my time working with him yeah and he taught me a lot of interesting things very u- unique original mind but i think he kind of he kind of slipped into that that trump world and started to believe his own hype to some degree what did he teach you well, for instance, he told me that when he was an engineer at uh, the Bell Bell Telephone, yeah. that he would write every day 15 times, Dilbert is going to be a hit. Dilbert, yeah. Dilbert is a hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when I did Borat, I thought, I'm going to try that affirmation thing. <laughs> yeah. And I would write every day for like a year. Yeah. Borat is a phenomenon. Borat yeah. is a phenomena. Borat, and it worked. <laughs> you and think that was it? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know. It gave know. you the confidence. Yes. I, it, it manifested my energy yeah, in a way sure. that I did everything I could to make it work. It, it,
0: it held some insecurity at bay. That's right. And yeah. He
1: also looks at things... He, he had a great ability to look at things from another angle. Mm. So I I appreciated his unconventional way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. You know, he had an engineer's approach to life. He always was looking for a solution, you know. And the solutions, I think, is what led him to some of the weird right-wing stuff he's gotten into. Sure. You know, he sees it as logical. He sees everything as it's got to be logical. Yeah. That's what he based. The mystery, the X factor, even though he's into all of that, he's still looking for So he So pro- he, he, he
0: probably bought into the... The kind of uh, 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 decaying of of uh, American civilization because of uh, entitlement programs and that kind of so I like I'm trying to figure out how a guy with logic yeah w- would buy into you, you know something that he's probably sort of of the libertarian bent very much so I yeah. think that that would explain a lot actually yeah. Um, all right, so so you do like so, <laughs> so you, the first one you do is the Dylan movie, the directing, or you do you know, Curb first? The first thing I do, and again, how did I become a director after having given up on yeah.
1: it? Larry starts doing Curb, and he says to me, "You you should do one of these. Yeah. You should direct one of these." Yeah. And I said, "Okay." And then I was a director for like I, the, how many? A lot of them. Well, but I only did one before the Bob Dylan movie. Okay, I did one episode, and then I and then I was working with <laughs> Bob Dylan for a year, <laughs> writing in a cubicle in the boxing gym there, uh-huh. and. I would go home at night and I'd say to my, my now ex-wife, yeah. I would say, uh, you know, I should really direct this, but I'm too embarrassed yeah. to really ask. It's Bob yeah. Dylan. He can get anybody to direct this, but I should really direct this. And she said, why don't you just ask him? Yeah. Yeah. And so the next day I went in and I said, you know, Bob, I really, I really think I should direct this. Yeah. And he was like, okay. And that was it. So I was a
0: director, you know? <laughs> he probably walked away go, that guy's got it coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'm going to take him for a ride. Yeah, yeah. Well, nobody probably would have
1: taken... This was again, another 20 days. Sure. These were both... The movie that's out now yeah. and that movie were both 20-day shoots, yeah. which is incredible to, you know, think about when movies take a year
0: to shoot sometimes. But, so. that, but uh, like, in terms of how that movie come out, and you, you frame it that, you know, it's something you go back to and eventually you'll get if you can find it and yeah. and watch it. Yeah. But, I mean, how, how much did... Bob say, uh, nah, I'm not going to do it that way.
1: Well, f- right from the beginning, he said, I just want to tell you, I'm never going to watch this movie. <laughs> that was the, one of the first things he ever said to me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he, he wanted to do all kinds. Of, he was, he was, he wanted to do the whole movie with dance uh-huh. like all the all the action people so he, it's, it's, he's just he's just riffing he's riffing all the time yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. wanted he was trying accents on me oh boy and I would go, yeah. why why why? You knowing, know? knowing that he didn't give a fuck <laughs> he didn't give a fuck and even his real voice isn't his voice yeah, yeah, you know what I mean yeah. there's no real him really yeah, and yeah, he knows yeah. that yeah. he's a protean personality yeah, you know yeah, yeah. which we all are to sure, some degree sure. but he's very conscious of those yeah. many well, masks well,
0: most of us don't want to float that's right that's yeah,
1: right yeah. he's kind of gotten used to it yeah yeah because he'll grab something. That's right. And somebody will. Somebody will give him something to yeah, grab yeah, onto. Yeah, yeah. That's why. Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah. So, so then you you go back after that, do a bunch more curbs, and yeah. then you start knocking out a few movies. Well, because right?
1: I failed as uh, in my first movie, I failed. I thought, oh, this is going to be the beginning of my movie career. Yeah. I'm going to start getting offers. I'm going to you know make movies now. And I had nothing. Yeah. You know, and so I went back to Curb. Fortunately, Curb was great. Great fun. I learned a lot. I had a good time. I directed a lot of cool episodes. And also,
0: I guess. You you learned how to handle uh, real improvisation you yes. know, with a camera, which yes. was helpful yes. in working with Sasha. Which came
1: naturally to me to some degree yeah. also, I think, but also with Curb. I was able to expand in terms of we were able to. I was executive producer for two seasons yeah. also. So we did some really cool shows again, exploring you know, can you make fun of the Holocaust? Yeah, and you know, like looking at what you what humor can handle. Yeah, what humor can hold. Right. You know, and I find and again like in the Lenny Bruce inspiration, I find all that very uh, exciting and exhilarating.
0: And he was willing, and also you understood how Larry thought, so you yeah. knew where you were going to end up exactly you know, before before the 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 uh, structure became uh, uh, almost uh, a hack of itself. Correct, correct. And, uh, yeah. and
1: now very it's its so derivative now, of course. Yeah. There's so many things that are like that. You know? Well, it became derivative of
0: itself after yeah, a certain point because right. you could just refill it. Yeah, it's yeah, like oro, you... Ouroboros. It's like eats itself. Sure, but it's interesting that something like that that was so radical because you saw this sort of... Uh, uh, the kind of singular voice that drove the sensibility of Seinfeld yes. doing its thing in its purest format. Yes. But then there was no way it it couldn't become exactly what Seinfeld wasn't. That's right. Which was uh, uh, a, a... A successful a, franchise. Yeah, yeah, repetition.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, all... All TV series are sequels.
0: Yeah, you know, every right.
1: week you're going back. It's almost like church. Sure, people want to hear the same prayers and sing the same psalms. Yeah, you know, there's something about that repetition and that, that makes people comfortable. You. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I, I can never. When one of my problems as a stand-up. Even if I had good material, I couldn't do the same bit twice in yeah, a row.
0: Yeah, eventually you get bored of them. Once yeah. they work, it's sort of like, do I got to keep doing this? Yeah, and then, I, then, can't, you know.
1: I could never I could never lock into my act and make it sound spontaneous the next time. Well, the, you know? the trick
0: is really, as if you would have stuck with it, is, is once you, once you get a new five minutes – and you stick that in the middle, everything else kind of perks up again. That's
1: all oh, I see. I see. I didn't learn that lesson at <laughs> yeah. the time. Yeah, it's like you got the new chunk, <laughs> and right. then
0: you get the juice from the new chunk, and then you can kind of then ride it through the old stuff. Yeah, and maybe it'll even involve the old stuff. Into course, something else. yeah. If you if you're that kind of writer, yeah. yeah. All right. So, but but you know, once you do, you know, Borat, which is huge. Yeah, and Borat only happened. I
1: had met um, Sasha a couple of years before. Yeah. And he started the movie with Todd Phillips, actually. Yeah. And they didn't get along, and yeah. Todd Phillips left. And yeah. uh, they came to me and said, would you be interested in doing this? Yeah. And I loved Borat from The Ali G Show, and I knew it was going to be funny. Super
0: and funny. And you knew that guy was a gifted fucker.
1: Oh, my God. Well, we also agreed at the beginning, we want to make the funniest movie ever made. Yeah. Like, that was the aspiration, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and he was, at that time ready to go for it. Yeah. You know, he had no inhibitions at all. Yeah. Uh, Even though he's a very conventional person. I don't know if you ever had an interview with Uh, him. Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very conventional person in a lot of ways, but, but intellectually brilliant. Yeah. And, um, really wanting to make, I,
0: I don't know if it's conventional or British.
1: Right. Well that's a that's a that's a distinction that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean he's a family man, he sure. just like, sure. he's not Bruno, he's yeah, not Bora. Yeah, no, yeah. Of course. You know, he's of like course. he's able to really immerse himself. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. I felt like after he had done Bora, like that was an Oscar worthy performance. Sure. Like it changed acting the way Marlon Brando did in On the Waterfront. Yeah. You know, you can never he's acting with real people yeah. and it's credible. Yeah.
0: You know, I yeah. thought
1: that was a really kind of one of the miracles of the movie. But he wasn't really recognized for that, which I
0: thought was kind of unfair. Well, it's also the height of of perfecting improvisation in a way. Yes, exactly. Because he uh, doesn't. We don't know what the other person's going to sure exactly. You know, and, and to stay in it. it, it.
1: But yet he had in his pocket. Maybe he told you this. He had a book of translations that actually had material in it. So if he forgot a question. If he forgot something oh, that. Yeah. he had he had his little he would ask well, what word well how does you it? Oh, and he look up the word and he'd look oh, for the joke That's yeah. clever so, so he, he had a, that yeah he,
0: he wasn't uh a, a, he wasn't immersed in a method way
1: well it, it, he was he was immersed yeah but, but know, he,
0: he knew he was still doing yes, a thing he,
1: he was able to maintain that uh-huh. duality sure. which is which is tricky in those
0: kind of tense situations sure yeah. sure yeah. the the type of uh, uh egos that you had to sort of uh engage with it uh, really means that you have a uh, uh, a fundamentally codependent personality. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I'm afraid that's so. Uh, that you know, <laughs> th- th- and to sort of deal with Bill Maher for even more than a day is some sort of Herculean task. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I've had like,
1: Mickey Rourke. I've worked with and Val Kilmer. But uh, religious, religious with Bill, sure. You
0: you did that because you thought it was uh, uh, ideologically up your alley.
1: Yeah. I, after Borat was done, yeah. uh, we talked about doing a sequel to Borat. And I had this idea of Borat because the religion in Kazakhstan was the worship of the hawk. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe they should find a new religion for Kazakhstan. And he would go around the world and explore new religions and we would have some fun with that. Yeah. He didn't want to do that. Right. So, but I thought to myself, wow, religion, I yeah. could a, and I thought about all the movies yeah. and all the pop culture references. Yeah. And I saw that movie. And then I was told that Bill was also working on a kind of movie that was about religion. We met. It was the first time we met. Yeah. And even though we had a million mutual friends like you and I probably yeah. do. And um, we were able to synthesize those two movies into one movie.
0: Yeah. And it was okay experience? It was
1: great. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I had like a, you know, the, a van full of people. That was it. And
0: Bill... And we just drove around Rome. Well, he's one of those guys. The funny thing about him, I think, and 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 I don't really necessarily love what he's become. Right. It's, but, it's controversial, certainly. But 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 if you can disarm him, he's 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 kind of just a kid. Yeah. Exactly. I always
1: I always got along with him yeah. great. I mean, he was. I found him a much more open, yeah. flexible person than he comes off well, in well, the TV yeah. persona, you know? Well, yeah.
0: Well, well, he's out in the world and he's yeah. not, you know, he's a heavily written for guy. Yeah. And so he, he probably needed you to, to, yeah. to, to he trusted support me. him. Yeah. He did trust me. And we were in place. He just, he hates to travel, yeah.
1: you know, to, to these foreign countries. Uh, and
0: uh, oh, so he was already sort of a little nervous.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. and he would get out of the van, do the thing and yeah. get back in the van and go. But yeah. then I would take the crew and we would go shoot other stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, so I had a great time. It was really fun. That's interesting. And then, like, but and Bruno and the Dictator were very specific kind of uh, uh, characters to to sort of get at something more specific than Borat.
1: Yeah. Although you know, the funny thing is Borat because it was such a success. Success breeds kinship. Success breeds camaraderie. Yeah. You know, success breeds love on this kind of superficial level. But when you deal with failure. Everybody goes running from sure. the ship and like, blaming. Yeah, so Bruno was a much more complicated. I think it's like it's like uh, Paul's boutique compared sure. to License to Ill.
0: Yeah, you yeah. know, it's yeah. a
1: complicated yeah.
0: so, movie. So really, there are people that like it
1: better. <laughs> no one, I don't know about that, actually. Because um, Paul's Boutique has you, definitely
0: got its, you know.
1: Right, it's it's, it's grown, though. It, a, you yeah, know, sure. it, it wasn't really loved at first.
0: But, but, but like Dale is a punk rock record, you know, Born to right. changed the face of hip-hop.
1: Right, well, yeah. Bo, Borat to me is much more the punk rock sure. movie, and Bruno is much more the Paul's Boutique, where it's complicated, where sh- we didn't set out to do what the movie became. We set out to have this funny gay character, yeah. you know, do these things. Yeah. But it turned out that America was so homophobic yeah. that the movie took a very dark turn. Yeah. And that became a much more interesting movie in sure. a way, but not as funny maybe.
0: Right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And The Dictator was just like a you know, very sort of uh, broad, uh, you know, attack. This is where really, you know, I had a long conversation with Sasha about studying uh, the Buffon. The right. Buffoon, yes, and and that that was his that was his great buffoon, yes, yeah, was that character, right? Yeah. But
1: he, because it wasn't something he had worked on for years, yeah. With Borat, he yeah. he knew the underwear he was wearing, the sure. socks, yeah. what he had in his pockets, yeah. He didn't have that kind of time with the with Aladdin, the dictator, so he wound up it wound up not being Too quite broad. as detailed, right. as it could have been, and sure. he had a second part that he really didn't have time to work on enough. And so that second part, that Prince and the Pauper type of story, had to be de-emphasized to a large degree. So the movie had a much more epic quality originally, and it kind of wound up becoming another version of the one-man show, which is I I think really hurt the movie, and also changed my sensibility again, because that was a big-budget movie with pressure from the studio, and I didn't get to support... And I vowed to myself I would never make a movie like that again, and I wouldn't. Yeah. I would never make a big budget, crazy thing like that. But The the Army of
0: One was a scripted thing.
1: It was uh, semi-scripted, semi-improv with Nick Nick Improv. I had Nick Improv And how was that for for you? I love Nick. Nick is one of those people that will go to the mat with you. Yeah, he's great. We we had a great time together. He's great. I love him. Yeah. I love him. And Russell Brand played God in that movie. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's not helping him now. No,
1: no, I haven't. I haven't posted any of the clips either. Yeah, I probably wouldn't.
0: Do but that. Uh, yeah,
1: well, good for you. <laughs> I'm
0: I, trying to be I, nice. I, I like that you had a fight with that. <laughs> yeah, I thought about it for a second
1: because <laughs> I love the movie, and that's the movie nobody's seen. Yeah, you know? he's, and you, he's
0: great in it. And by you though. do like to fuck with people, so, of course. Why but, not? But yeah. so why, why hit a guy when he's and, down? And
1: Russell Brand could take it. Not now. No, I guess not. Yeah. I guess not. But- I but, uh, also had a great experience with him, by the way, I should say. Sure. He was a charming, great- He's one of the great intellectual giants. Yeah. Maybe a sociopath, maybe, you know, other yeah. issues. Yeah. But really, really,
0: uh, when my interactions with him were just nothing but positive. So, like now, because it seems to me, like after that filmography and then you going back to directing and now- But this seems to be the- Dix, the musical, seems to be the most realized film. I agree that you've done and and that, you know, the collaboration that you are as a as a older, wiser guy, were were able to do. You yeah. clearly let people do their job.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I'm also allowed
1: you know, because I worked on the script with the guys and gave them a lot of notes yeah. and even wrote one of the drafts yeah. that um, I'm able to um, I don't I will only take material that I feel like I can put myself into somehow. Sure. You know, I'm involved with the movie from the very, very inception of the movie. And so I wanted to reflect the things that I'm thinking about as well. And it was able to do all those things, you know, or work on all those levels. And with massive talent. With massive talent, luckily. Yeah. Yeah, Nathan Lane, I think Nathan Lane this year became, finally people realize he's a national treasure. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's been great for so many years. Yeah. So maybe this is the movie that will people, you know, for him, He's won Tonys. He's sure. been Angels of America. Yeah. I don't necessarily want him to be remembered for feeding the Sewer Boys. Yeah. But I do appreciate the fact that that's maybe going to be his most famous sequence.
0: I like the outtakes. Or the, well, but, <laughs> I, I don't know if that'll be—I mean, the songs are— The I songs, think. yeah. I know. And, and Mulally, you know, sang the shit out of that. She, uh, like, did you know that she had a voice? Yes. I,
1: I, yeah, I mean, she. the guys told me, Josh and Aaron— that she's a gay icon, yeah, and her, the Broadway stuff. I really wasn't aware of that oh, she's as much a huge, as a huge. Tr- oh, yeah, Broadway she's star. great. She yeah. was great, and she and Nathan had worked together before. Yeah, yeah. So all of that really kind of came. And together. she really built that weirdo character completely, yeah. completely. And and uh, um, I, I this is something I, I guess I'm about to tell you. Yeah. They wanted to. They didn't like what she was doing at first. Yeah, the producers. Yeah, and they came to me and they said, "We may have to let her go." And I'm like, "What are you crazy? Are she's you- she's creating. This is
0: early in the in the shoot. But that's so weird and short sighted because I like, yes. yeah, I find this happens sometimes. It's like she's an actress. Yeah. I you, you know I'll listen to what you say, and if I agree with any of the adjustments, she'll do them. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly how we did it. I yeah. would not let them
1: let her go. Yeah. It would have it would have closed down the movie, and been, that would have been the end of it. Yeah. And. They, I had faith in her and she was committed yeah. and I knew she had something on her mind yeah. that could work great yeah. and it wound up being like one of the highlights of the movie her performance sure. oh yeah
0: it, it's so, great it yeah. all worked out great Yeah, and uh, I appreciate you coming oh man it was a pleasure to meet you yeah great yeah, talk yeah, yeah. thanks man oh of course what kind of jam session was that what kind of riff party was me and Larry right What an engaged conversation. I enjoyed that immensely. Dix, the musical, opens tomorrow and expands across the country in the weeks ahead. Please, please, people, hang out for a minute. Folks, I answered your question this week on the full Marin in the latest Ask Mark Anything episode. Thanks for all the questions you sent, including this one. Can you expand about why the night of the Chevy Chase roast was such a bad night for you personally? Well, I can. I had accepted to do the roast. I'm not really a roast comic. I don't really know how to do it. I still don't. I didn't really know how to do it then. I'm not, I'm not very good at insult comedy uh, as a genre. You know, I can be funny at, in, in an insulting way, but I, I didn't really know the format. It made me nervous. I had to write a bunch of jokes. My ex-wife, Mishnah, wrote a couple jokes, and it was before the, the roasts were really a thing. But the bottom line was, it it was a huge dais. There were just, it seemed like a hundred people on it. Many of them had nothing to do with roasting. The audience was huge. It was at the Hilton, I think, in New York City, and they were eating. And it was just a flat night. Chevy didn't really want to engage or be there. Everyone was bombing. And I just had a very hard time bombing that hard in front of that many people and my peers. And uh, it just kind of sent me spiraling into a kind of not a nervous breakdown, but it was it was embarrassing. it and it was it was hard to bomb that hard. Look, they made it look good, but it 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 just felt like a very public humiliation. Now, granted, any bomb is that in a way, but you do get used to it. It just felt like a very dismissive room. Chevy wasn't fun. There was nothing fun about it. And once the joke started crapping out, It's just like any other bomb. It was just a big one. And I felt like it made me look bad. I felt like everyone was judging me, even though everyone else was bombing, except for maybe a couple of people. It was humiliating, and it made me doubt myself in a very deep way. To hear all the bonus episodes on the Full Marin, subscribe by going to the link in the episode description or go to wtfpod.com and click on WTF+. Here's me playing my new guitar.